The hard part is for a client to say, I love this space because it's light, bright, and airy. I think the way to teach then is to then point out the design moves that a design professional made to say, well, this is why you feel that way because that transom window over there lets light come in throughout the day. Uh, and, and you are also looking at a large window that you're connected with your garden, which brings you joy on a, on a continual basis. Those things together creates a space that and, you know, creates calm and serenity and peace or whatever the emotion you just talked about. Today we are speaking with Rick Straub. Am I saying that right? Nope, it's Staub. S-T-A-U-B. Yep. Nah, there's no R. Look at that. Rick Staub, co-creator of Your Modern Cottage. And am I saying that right as far as co-creator? That one you have right, yep. Ah, good. So co-creators uh, are right, yep. Tell me tell me about your other creators, yourself and your modern cottage, your background, all of that. All right. So my background, I'm an architect. I've been in, I've been doing this uh, for more than 25 years now, um, close to 30 if you consider my high school career doing some designs for my dad when I was a kid. Um, uh, so we, we are a firm and I have a, a, another firm called Point One Architects down in Old Lyme, Connecticut. We yep. do uh, both commercial and residential work. Um, and for the past 20 years or so, I've been kind of focusing on the residential side of that and uh, I've grown quite fond of doing that and, and working with clients and solving their problems. Um, a couple of years ago, we started to think about um, some of the challenges we were facing with our clients is in, in marketing and trying to understand how uh, clients interact with architects, especially in the residential world, and came to find out that most of them are pretty naive to the process. Um, and so with that in mind, I started thinking of this kind of outlet to educate our potential clients about what architects do uh, and that kind of led to this concept of your modern cottage. And so uh, probably about 20 years ago, I met a, a PR woman, Jennifer Carmichael, who's my co-creator at Your Modern Cottage. And uh, she is kind of a marketing PR writer. And we decided over the years, uh, working through PR for the, the firm of Point One Architects, that to basically um, that evolved into this idea of creating a blog post to start sharing content with the world about what architects provide for clients, um, the value we bring, because that was the biggest challenge I felt that most most people in the world don't understand the value that architects deliver to uh, home design. And that's kind of the beginning of what your modern cottage was. So essentially a, a inspirational and educational outlet to speak to essentially potential clients. Yeah, the exactly that. It's a uh, inspiration kind of to start, but then this idea of of giving the knowledge behind what why people are inspired by certain things they look at. There's mm -hmm. a you know designers work really hard to design things, um, and I think a lot of people just look at those designs and and think that it happens without a whole lot of back thought or back education or. Uh, knowledge into what's happening there, but it, really what it is, is it's a, a deep insight into the clients to end up with the designs that make sense. So I'd like to go deep on that uh, creative process. And, and it seems like you're hitting on that, um, on the on the real value of that whole process of, of creativity as it applies to uh, solving a design problem for a residential client, mostly. Uh, in this Correct. case, um, would would you see yourself as a creative? Sure, and most would, definitely. Would you see yourself as an artist? Yes. 
And do you see a difference between those two at all? I think creative is is more um, a, a problem solving that's directing a problem solving that's directed towards client solutions, where an artistic approach is more about exploring one's own kind of personal um, challenges within mm-hmm. and expressing that through whatever whatever media they use. Um, so architecture to me is a, a, it's really directed at a a client and a site and solving the problems that really identify and work with that client on that particular site. So a, a, a far more creative prospect with less of an artistic, um, less of an artistic voice than a creative problem solving voice. Yeah, but there always has to be the artistic side that influences what you do. Um, sure. That's just part of who we are as humans. We have that side to us and it always influences it. Um, and some in some architects that that artistic side dominates the design. Um, it kind of overwhelms, not overwhelms it, but but maybe takes away from what the client's real solution can be. Mm. I think there's a fine balance between that. Right, right. Uh, a star architect, if you will, has far more of their their own voice in the end result than a creative solution to the desired. Uh, needs to be solved of the client. Yes, but not to say that a star architect doesn't have creative design solutions as well. They just, right. they just, um, <laughs> there's more of their, their own vision in voice. mind. Yeah. Cause you can always tell a, a Gary, a Stephen Hall, a Renzo Piano, uh, it's their voice coming through very clearly. It's their language of art. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, what, what, if you had to more deeply um, describe the process of creativity, like what does that feel like to you when you employ a creative mind, a creative approach? What exactly is that and how does it feel to you as you work creatively? It's, it's been an exploration for me and, and actually the firm, the point one architects firm that I work with as well, that we've, um, it's, you know, the, the name actually point one architects, um, was developed around this idea of understanding the clients first. Mm-hmm. The first step of any architectural project is understanding the desires, needs of the client, of the user, of the space that you're designing. And from that, we've developed this, this concept that we call design DNA, mm-hmm. which is a, a process of discovery early on, uh, and it can take on many levels of, of kind of uh, layers of, of information, but it, it works in both commercial and residential for us. Uh, and it's really a, a discovery project through, uh, process through workshopping, through discussion, through site analysis, through um, challenges of, of zoning and context and things like that, that all come to, together to create this kind of design narrative or challenge narrative that we call it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we create a challenge statement after every every initial discovery to understand really what the challenges we're trying to solve. Um, and so for me, the design process is built around this idea of understanding the problem as best I can. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we have a lot of residential client come to clients come to us and say, you know, I, I, I really I know what I want to do here. Um, and I always take that that comment as a bit of a challenge and really it's like, no, you probably don't really know what you want to do here. You know what you think you need to do here, but let's get to the root of the cause that's causing you to get to that point. 
And if we can get to the root cause of the challenges, then we can solve the real problem instead of putting lipstick on something that may be broken. Mm. Um, we really, uh, it, if we solve the core issues, then we're solving for the longer period of time. Right. So you have a client that comes to you with uh, essentially abstract data points that are a problem that you then uh, have to insert your own uh, experience into subjectively. You have to process them and then objectify them into some solution that, as you're saying, they're kind of telling you, here's what we want to do. We, here's our abstract problem and here's our end result. And you're saying, well, sometimes you have to come back and say your abstract problem might not result in what you think it's, what you've already preconceived it's going to end up as. Um, myself, as an architect, creative problem solver, I'm going to subjectively go through your abstract problem as a process of experiencing, analyzing it, and then objectifying it into some fairly more concrete and utilitarian solution at the end. It's exactly right, except that, that, not accept that, but there's also this component of that the client's narrative, the client problem they bring to us is only one small portion of the overall analysis we need to do. Mm. Um, there's analysis that comes from the hard stuff that's just part of what the towns are going to allow on a site, right. uh, what the weather is doing in our, in our location, what the context looks like. So there's many other layers on top of just that owner's analysis. It's it's all those things have to come together. Right. So the, the owner brings their problem and analysis of their living difficulties, but then you have to also be aware of and bring to the table further limitations upon a possible solution that then extreme creativity has to be able to mix all of those in a blender in a cohesive way to produce an end result that's, that's something that people... Uh, except as good. Exactly. And, and what we've discovered over the years is that um, it's much easier to design a solution for a client when there are more, I'll call them constraints, but they're not mm. necessarily constraints, that there's more parameters to the problem right. um, than an open field of nothingness. If you're trying to design in a vacuum, you really have nothing to bounce your thoughts and ideas against. Right. The The... If, if they're the more the more data points of limitation that are present in an abstract problem, the more precise and limited the end result would then be, because there's less possibility. The more data with a splash of art that. on right, right, <laughs> with a splash of uh, within a splash of art on top of it, right. Um, I, we call it, I, I call it the, the design sauce. We all come with our special design sauce that we add to the mix at some point, but you have to get you know the core ingredients in there and then you add your design sauce to it. Right, right. Yeah, I, I've been in, in preparation for this and just in my own interest in philosophically what this process is about as you've designed and made a, an outlet to uh, further illuminate this process through your modern cottage. Um, I see a creative as someone who possesses the, for one, psychological trait of openness uh, to subject oneself to the abstract chaos of problems, data points, 
and express the resulting emotions from that subjective experience of interacting with those points of data that are the abstract and turn that experience of interacting with that into a further objectified thing of some further degree of concrete utility. Does that make any sense? That, that's not, that's it in a nutshell. Yeah. That, uh, I've, I've, <laughs> a big I've, nutshell, but a nutshell. Yeah. yeah. I've, I've constantly struggled with what creativity is. It's, it's, it's highly present in individuals that are high in the psychological trait of openness as in they, they find more joy, meaning, and purpose in subjecting themselves to uh, experience. And then from the emotions of that experience, creating some further objectified thing that they can hand back to, um, back to the judges, if you will, to, to say, yes, this yeah, is no, good. Or no, keep working. I I, I I like your analysis of the openness because I think that I've never thought of it that way before. But that definitely is what it needs to be. If you're not open to learning more about every time you look at something, mm. then all you're doing is narrowly focusing your direction down one path that you're consistently used to. Um, right, and and it consistent... that's not creativity necessarily. That's just right. That's just working a task. Yeah, and a and a consistent path that you're used to will be safe. It'll be beneficial, um, it'll be reliable, dependable, but it, it will not be something new to solve a problem that is not yet solved. So if, if, a, if a reliable method does completely solve the problem, do we need to find any more uh, creative solutions? I had, a, I had an architecture professor that was an extreme classicist if that's the right word i i forget architecture school is a long time ago but <laughs> you know he was very very right. connected to there's a classical approach and it solves everything why do we need to do anything else and i i did not understand it at the time but i imagine his personality was probably one that had a high degree of uh conscientiousness in his personality so his approach of creativity was less <clears throat> one of openness and probably far more of one of preaching the gospel of something that already works as a solution process. Understand completely. And, and um, sometimes it's really hard to break out of that comfort zone of familiarity, right? That's um, yeah. one of the challenges we always have to press ourselves against. And that's where these outside constraints actually help us a little bit. Um, you know, when you run into an, a, a challenge uh, that starts to spark and break out of the normal path, and that's that's you know really a good thing for design, in, in my in my case. Yeah, yeah, and I think they're, yeah, I, that's probably intrinsic in the way that potential clients choose potential architects is that they probably resonate with some degree of this person is finding new solutions outside of existing. Uh, problem-solving dynamics, uh, so a more modern, modernist, creative, whatever, new is going to connect more maybe with a potential client that desires something like that in their life rather than someone who seeks consistency and uh, safety, comfort within a repeatable 
uh, uh, tried and true method. Yeah, we, we hope that people come with that, um, that attitude, but it's not always the case. Sometimes it's just the fact that they ran into some stick in the process and they need something to help them get beyond that stick and they don't quite understand what that is yet. So, right. Right. Um, let's see, I've got, I've got so many rambling notes of, of abstract thinking here. That's, uh, <laughs> let me see. So my, my next question is, I think you've kind of already answered what is art or basically the, the, the idea of a creative, someone who possesses the openness to subject themselves to the abstract chaos and express the resulting emotions of the experience into an objectified thing of some further degree of concrete utility. But then that begs the question, what is art? And I think you kind of answered that in that art is more of a, uh, a personal voice coming through creativity, that, that there's a personal vision that, that is projected through that subjective creativity. I'd, I'd call that more art in my opinion. And I think it also has a story that's involved with it too. It's usually trying to get some kind of messaging or storage story out to the world through whatever that channel might be. Right. Um, whereas I think the, the creative process of architecture at least is there is a story, but that story is relative to a client and their site and, um, you know, the future or the, or the, the story they want to tell with themselves. So it's not a universal story. It's a, it's a more focused story. Ah, so I think you work in the same way with a client that I work with an architect as far as architectural photography, that you're overlaying your creativity over someone else's uh, story and their own create creativity of life you come and overlay your creative problem-solving abilities over their problem, and you create a work of architecture. And then I come in lastly with my creative approach and overlay the, my creativity over the, the problem-solving creativity that you already made. So there's kind of these different think, layers. And I, and I think that's actually going to be, um, become clear to you the same, what you're saying is going to become clear to you when we talk about what your modern cottage is. The first word of that is your modern cottage. Your mm -hmm. is about your story, the homeowner's story. Um, it has to be based on that. At least I think, um, it doesn't have to be based on that, but the way I like to, to design and the way I like to create is that it has to be based on their, on their story because otherwise I'm not solving their problem if I'm doing my own story. Right. What, what's your... What's your most successful, fulfilling method of listening, hearing, and embracing the story of a, a client? Uh, I would, we, we do this in a workshop process where we're sitting down and interviewing and playing games and giving tasks and, and uh, having, having them kind of discuss with us the feelings and the emotions. Uh, it's really easy to get someone to talk about a three-bedroom house, the two bathrooms, and, and whatever family space they want. But it's really difficult to get someone to talk about the feeling they have when they come home or the feeling they want someone to feel when they walk to their front door. Um, and those are the things that are the most fulfilling. If we can get some good emotional content, some good feeling content out of those discussions, we're on the right path. Hmm. So, so to uh, drag you deeper into the deep end... <laughs> 
what what's your uh what's your take on the on on what emotions are compared to articulated reason and rationality and and why would emotions be more valuable than their words to me emotions are built from um how do i put this all the stuff that's been building up inside of a space over years it becomes an emotional reaction at some point um you know i have an emotional reaction we get quite a bit is is you know for example, I hate my kitchen, right? This idea of hate kitchen um, is a very strong emotion. And once we get this idea of hating it, why we can then get to the points of where it sticks for them and where it doesn't work for them and and how we then can solve the problem of where it doesn't work to that. Um, but if they come in and say, you know what, I don't like my kitchen. I really need to kind of just, uh, I, I want to update it a bit. It's like, that's not giving me this kind of emotional reaction. Once I have that emotional mm -hmm. reaction, we can then start to dig deep into it. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think so. I've, I've come to, I've come to think of emotions as a native tongue, if you will, uh, within the conversation of an individual with themselves. And it's the, the first and clearest voice that you understand, but the ability to articulate those emotions into word there, there's a gap that has to be traversed. And so if you can go back across that gap and talk about the emotions that they feel towards their space and the complexity of that into the dissatisfaction that they hold with that space, you're going to be getting more at the foundational issue, like you're saying. That makes sense. Yeah, you you mentioned the first, and I think you said first and foremost thought they have or, or first and foremost something that they have. And I think that's exactly what an emotion is. The emotion is something that has been kind of formulating within them for whatever time period they've had this issue. And that emotion becomes apparent at that point, and that's their, their kind of key driver, I guess. Right, yeah. I, I think of emotions as our native tongue, uh, the, the yeah. first language we really understand. Um, now, the, is, is the process of design subjective or objective to you? Hmm. Explain that a little further. What, 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 what's your... So I have a preconceived idea on this that I'm, I, I, I don't want to say it too much because then it, it clouds your response. And to get your response without me explaining my position gives me a clear idea of <laughs> if I'm getting closer to actually being right about something. Cause I don't, I don't know if I'm right on it or not, Okay, but, um, in, that's, that's fair. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the process of designing it to me seems to be both a subjective, it's a subjective process that you have to be open to, there's that openness again, a subjective process. So you're open to coming into this abstract and objectifying it. So design to me yeah. seems to be I mean, one and the same, both subjective and objective. Yeah, so that's why I guess I asked you the question back because the first thing that came to my mind was it, it has to be both. It, it can't yeah. be one or the other. 
Um, otherwise, you're putting it into path that may not be the creative solution that you're looking for. I have to add my uh. subjective opinions onto it, which is based on my history of my my education and my knowledge and and stuff like that. Uh, and then I have to objectify it by getting it into a tangible thing that a client can understand right. um, and really kind of relate to. And to me, that's got to be uh, in some way, shape, or form the rationale behind calling architecture the uh what do they call it the the found the highest level of art or there's some I, i'm getting the quote completely wrong but maybe it's that the the process is both one of doing these very uh, opposite things within a single problem to create a solution rather than just uh, looking for personal truth. I'm, I'm going in deep over my head there. That's going to take more refinement for me to make any <laughs> sense of. <laughs> um, well, you got you to gotta explore it in, out loud sometimes. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're not free to put bad ideas out there, you'll never be able to get them corrected and get closer to a truth, I guess. Yep. Um, I feel that the creative process is one of objectification, and it seems like we agree on that. It's uh, further developing something into a, a, a more concrete thing of utility, um, which is interesting to me because, you know, we our, our relationship to the word objectification in the U.S., I mean, I think immediately goes to the objectification of women. And we understand it. Yeah, I it's do. A con- you know, it's just to say you might be this highly abstract thing with limitless potential but I'm going to objectify you into only being of this. And that's a very negative thing when you apply it to something that has will, like a human. But in, in the you process tend to, of... You tend, to compart, you tend to compartmentalize if you, in that connotation. Right. right. You tend to um, put, put things in a, in a specific box, mm-hmm. and that's not necessarily what it, what it should be. Right. So in, in some cases, objectification is a further focusing and refinement and clarifying of something. In one case, it would be good. And then in another case, it's a limiting factor, which would be negative. And the determination of uh, positive or negative, good or bad, it seems to be if uh, will or free will or life exists in it. Crickets. Understood. <laughs> um, no. <laughs> how, how do you teach someone to understand their emotions that are connected to a space? How do you teach someone to understand? It's, it's through. How do we teach? How do it's it's. Um, now I had pulled I that question teaching because than it is more- I had pulled that question because I had read that on on the. I think the bio of your modern cottage that you're, you're striving to teach someone how they can understand. Why do I love that space? Exactly. So, um, it's a good question. How do I, how do we get to that, that point of, because it's unique. uh, Someone's love for something is unique for them and it's, it's very specific for them. Um, and so it's, it's more of understanding to me the, the idea of, um, 
why, what design moves does an architect make to reinforce those things that people enjoy or turn into happiness in their lives? So for instance, um, if someone really loves a space because it's light and bright and airy, then here are the design moves that a designer can do to help make that happen. Mm. Um, the hard part is for a client to say to me that, uh, I love this space because it's light, bright and airy. Um, they just usually come and say, you know what, this, th I love this space because it makes me feel calm or it makes me feel mm. uh, relaxed or it makes me connect to the, my environment or something like that. And so I think the way to teach then is to then point out the design moves that a design professional made to say, well, this is why you feel that way, because that transom window over there lets light come in throughout the day. Uh, and, and you are also looking at a large window that you're connected with your garden, which brings you joy on a, on a continual basis. Those things together creates a space that, and, you know, creates calm and serenity and peace or whatever the emotion you just talked about. Mm. Um, so it's making that connection between design and feeling kind of. Right. Yeah. The, um, the example I have here is one more of interpersonal relationships, but like when, when I fell in love with my wife, I didn't know exactly why there was this attraction. It just was. Mm -hmm. But as I learned more about, uh, psychology, as I learned more about my own shortcomings and weaknesses and things lacking in my life that she brought that made me feel more alive, I started to then be able to understand why I had this feeling towards this person and why they, they, they added that to my life. And in the same way, what you're saying, I love this space. Well, okay, that's good. We can just replicate that for you. Or, you know, you have very unique problems. We're going to have to manipulate this space in some way. Let's get more specific about, well, why do you like this space? Well, it feels bright, all right? Windows and properly placed windows and, and paint colors and uh, materials. And yeah, to, I always wondered in architecture school why there wasn't a more scientific approach to architecture. Because I remember seeing in, I think it was graphic illustrated, illustration, whatever, you know, a space having... Uh, a ceiling that came down like that would make you feel like you wanted to go to the edges or a space with a dome would make you feel like you more want to come to the center. Um, it, it, it was always interesting to me that the, it didn't seem like this process of architecture was a scientific endeavor. And to me, a scientific endeavor is uh, based foundationally in uh, objectified consistencies that you 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 project towards an unknown where art or architecture are looking at uh objectified problems that need to be solved into a solution and it's somehow the difference between an artistic process and a scientific process and and unlike I think a scientific process, uh, perhaps those emotions of space, uh, I'll call them those emotions that you feel whether you're in your space, whether it's a dome or whether it's a concave thing, also are influenced by the psychology of what you've done as a kid or grown up as. Mm. Um, there's some things that influence how you lived as a child that might influence how you're going to feel a space in the future. 
Uh, and so some of that is, is getting to that. You know, one of the first questions we ask is, did you love the home you grew up in? And then why kind of get into some of the points about what that was? What mm-hmm. was it? a Was it a Frank Lloyd Wright house with very low ceilings and a high space to kind of bring joy at certain points? Or was it a colonial that was very ordered and regular and you felt com- comfortable about knowing your 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 place in that space? Right. Um, and so there's a lot of that that, that kind of goes into it as well. Now, why why do you think there's such importance? This is a very deep and general question again. Uh, why do you think there's such importance on the time that we spent as children informing our relationship to our reality? Well, you're getting me into into the psycho- psychology of of growing up and, and emotions and things like that. So I, you know, I don't I don't necessarily have the answer why the psychology side of things affects us that way. I just know that it does, um, and I know that we've had you know deeper conversations with clients in the past, and we've gotten to the root cause of it being that something that they just didn't like it because when they were a kid they had a negative response to it, mm. um, whether that was you know. I don't know, you know, getting very personal or, or just kind of just the fact that, you know, they hated the brick in the house because it was cold and wet and my room was always damp and you better not put brick in my house. Right. Uh, you know, just it's kind of real things like that. Yeah. So the psychology of it, I, I'm not going to get into that part of it. That's someone else's job to do that. But I just know there's a reaction to that. So you being human, I'm going to I'm going to run a, yeah. a theory by you. Um, so was was your childhood everything you dreamed it would be? Wow. Um, from hindsight, I could say probably no. Um, while I was living in the moment, I probably thought yes. Um, you know, there was, yeah, I, I actually grew up in, in the mountains of, of northern Utah, mm-hmm. um, which was a very kind of wide open experience. Um, in one sense, wide open as far as this idea of um, the natural environment. Um, in another sense, not so wide open as far as the, the conservative views of people in the area. Um, and so I didn't know that when I was a child, those conservative views didn't really influence me a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, so I just reacted to this idea of the openness of the space. So now when I'm in a, I live in Connecticut right now, which to me oftentimes feels closed and condensed because the, all the trees, which, you know, um, tend to keep my viewpoints um, fairly limited until I get to the coast or I get to the river or something like that where I can expand my views. I feel like I enjoy those views um, with a greater knowledge now because of that and the history of where I was. So right. that's a long answer to probably your question. But, um, you know, did my childhood live up to my expectations? Yes. Um, where did you form those there's expectations? A lot I think I only formed them after the fact. Right. I didn't have expectations while I was living it. I just I'm now as I'm now as I look back at it, I said, yeah, that was a pretty pretty good way to go. Right. Yeah. So, the the original question though, was your childhood everything you dreamed it would be? Asking, when you preconceived an expectation of your childhood, when you lived your childhood, did it live up to that preconceived expectation? That's a really hard question. <laughs> That's a really hard question. Um, I don't really, I don't know if I remember my dreams. I mean, I was able to do basically anything I wanted to do growing up in the seventies and eighties. 
So I didn't have a whole <laughs> yeah, lot of them. It was a much more free time. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I didn't have a whole lot of limitations. And so I'd say, yes, my expectations were met. My, my dreams were, were met. I didn't always live up to my own personal goals, uh, right. <laughs> which is a whole different story. Right. But the, um, the, the but complexity, I was given the opportunity to, to do that. The, the complexity and riddle in that question to begin with is that you don't get to dream or preconceive your childhood. You only get to experience it. Yep. So then the follow-up question is, at what point in your life did you start to live against a preconceived expectation? And I'll bet you when, you when you start to live your life against a preconceived expectation that there's some amount of loss of magic and joy that happens. Not completely, but we know that living up to someone else's expectations uh, is not good. We know that. And um, Theodore Roosevelt has a good quote. I think it was Theodore Roosevelt. That comparison is a thief of joy. So at some point in your childhood, you were completely living through only experiencing. You were only living subjectively. You were only taking in experience and feeling emotions. And then at some point, you preconceived an expectation of how your life should be. So I, I would be willing to bet that that magical point that is so incredibly formative as a child comes from that lack of living against your own preconceived expectations. I, but it's just I a tend theory. To agree. I, I like, <laughs> no, I, I mean, I like the way you put it. I think it's... Um, it's it's very very true because I you know and where that switch happens when you start to you know consciously understand what your expectations are um, you know has that happened at high school has that happened at college has that happened as soon as you get a job or whatever it might be there's probably differences for everybody but right. yeah I think I can see that that living in the moment versus living for the future there's two different ways to look at life yeah and I've uh, I've I've found in recent times with my kids that the, the, that whole idea of people saying be present be present and I just had no idea what that meant but I've I've mm -hmm. found that if I can put aside my expectational analytical rationality like if I can put aside the analytical part of my mind and just experience a moment with my children that it's crazy amazing that there's there's some amount of beauty just raw beauty to to experience that um that interaction with a child that's free of this this really loud or not really loud but very persistent voice of uh preconceived expectations and everything else and it it working in that frame of thought is the first kind of more concrete way of thinking about being present that I've been able to come up with that, that has allowed me to live with a lot more, uh, allowed me to live with a lot more joy and experiencing my own emotions that uh, oddly are just through this conversation, they're connected to everything. 
have you have you been able to make that moment that living in the moment kind of stick or does it snap out every then because i've noticed that it snaps in and out it's like i'm living in the moment right now but the next minute i can like be completely out of it that that is that is a great i can feel it slip away i i can completely feel it slip away um and in like the worry comes in the uh you know the the instagram feed of some other photographer's work goes by me and i'm like oh crap i gotta get out of this moment and i gotta go conceptualize how i'm gonna do work better than that because then all these moments aren't gonna be possible anymore you know and but there's some deep peace that geez to get biblical there's some deep peace that passes understanding that when you become like one of these little ones you're connected to something and i'm not a religious person but those are some really uh deep biblical truths that i'm just saying biblical because i'm pulling them from there and they feel like they have a resonance throughout uh human experience if if you see these things well and and tying that concept back to to what we're trying to do with a little bit on your modern cottage is is part of this concept of of people's expectations are of Instagram images or watching HGTV or being in someone else's world and those expectations are not their world. Mm. And so the idea of your modern cottage is to get back to this idea of what are your real life things, right? Right. Uh, Let's not focus and let's not try to mimic someone else's. Let's get to you and and let's get to solving you. Yeah. And that helps, I think, alleviate some expectations. Yeah, the the idea of it's a it's a it's a cut both ways kind of thing because there's you see an objectified beauty in one sense and then that tells you I like that therefore I should I should desire to have it and possess it which then you know further objectifies your idea of what your life should be but at the same time, those further objectified living rooms, exteriors, kitchens, whatever, through the process of design and photography and presentation, they inform you what you want to create in your own space uh, through, through those processes of, of objectification that you can relate to it and say, I like it. And if you do your job right on your modern cottage through educating people on why they like something, then they can say, I like this because of that. And I see that this window is doing that, or this paint color is doing that, or those surfaces, textures, countertops are doing that. So I'll take this piece of that objectified space into this image. And I'll say, I like that and what I want to create. So if, if there's this ability to differentiate between, I just repeat that, or what is it about that, that I like that I can incorporate into my whole thing moving forward. I think that makes sense. And, and I think the challenge of today is that the amount of information we have that it's really hard to focus on one thing or mm. several things. You're focusing on millions of things, and that causes frustration and distraction in people, and it causes, um, I think, stress when they're thinking about their homes. You know, they're trying to make too many things happen um, because they're, they're, these objects are out there. Right. Um, and in reality, they, part of this is to focus the real things to their attention and say, these are the things that are the ones that, that are reminiscent of who you are. Um, don't be distracted by that shiny brass object over there. Let's focus on what your, your, 
your blue com is all about and let's let's go find that yeah yeah cool well i that is for me that's that's some uh, swimming in the deep end there i've been i've been treading water <laughs> barely keeping my nose uh, above the surface um that it that's i mean so much of what we've talked about has has been stuff that i've been working on that has been an epiphany for me really in just the last week seeing it all uh coalesce if that's the right word into something that i can use sounds like you're turning this into a a mantra of some sort or or a way to um create or something like that that you you're you're kind of getting your hands around yeah i I'm, I'm not a, uh, I'm not a religious personality type, but I grew up very religious and I lost that. So I had at one point in my life, a very scripted way to approach reality and lost that. So I've had to really dig deep. Uh, if, if I've, if, if I'm going to have something to hold on to that I can justify. So to, 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 to lose that thing, but to uh, accept the call to justify that, um, is a real, you, you start to look into things and you, you really start to grasp things like, I think therefore I am. And, you know, God is dead, but we killed him. You know, this objectification of the abstract (laughs) into something, that you can hold is is the form of a graven image spirituality objectified as religion religion objectified becomes a graven image and you lose the ability to subject yourself and experience something you've just received a cold dead object rather than a relationship so there's i think if you if you bear yourself raw you only learn uh you you learn a lot about yourself and about reality if it doesn't consume you so there's that fine line to <laughs> to walk on um that gotcha that's taken time so yeah that that all just <laughs> kind of came out on you from this last week so but but to good, to good, get your good. critical feedback is is really interesting because you've obviously thought about this process of creativity and how that fits into our reality and everything else. And, and that's been, I really appreciate that. So thank you. Thank you. Well, you've, you've done a, You've done a good job putting it into words though, too. That's great. Well, that, that whole, uh, articulated knowledge coming from our native tongue of emotions, you know, it's a one and then next. And then, well, what does that mean? What, what are we and what is our purpose? Uh, and this whole thing of creativity is, is part of that. It's all interconnected. And the further we can articulate that, I think the better understanding all of us are going to have about each other. And they'll, they'll just be uh, more homeostatic, homeostasis. There'll be a better balance uh, between all of yeah. us. And so I think that's our call to contribute. It's just a, a further understanding of this reality. So cool. Yeah. Wow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>
That's something. Who would have thought that's what we'll be talking about? But there we go. Yeah, but I, I think it's just so great that it, it relates to directly what, what you're talking about and why you formed Modern Co- Modern Cottage. And if if anything's true, it can relate to everything. So that it helps me and it, it helps me see what you're doing as something of, of great value for people. So that's cool. awesome. <laughs> so, Good. well... Thanks so much for taking the time to uh, sit down with me and, and listen to my ramblings and, and to share some of your ramblings. And uh, thank you. <laughs> well, I appreciate the time. And uh, by all means, if you have any more discussions you want to have on this, give me a <laughs> give me a ring and we'll talk more through it. All right. Great. Thank you so much, Rick Staub, if I'm pronouncing yep. that right. Uh, you got it. A principal, I, I would imagine, at One Point Architects, is it? Point, point one architects point in point. Old Lyme, Connecticut. Yep. Point one architects in Old Lyme, Connecticut, and co-founder of Your Modern Cottage. Correct. Awesome. Thank you uh, so much, and uh, maybe we'll see you again soon. Thanks, Trent. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye bye.